You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. We are going to continue in our series we're calling Word of Life, hearing teaching directly from Jesus himself. And uh, so we're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning to hear from Jesus. And of course, this is uh, important for us because uh, he's the whole reason we're here. Um, knowing him, understanding him, growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, is the purpose of why we're here. And uh, so we want to hear directly from him. Now, that's not to say uh, that the rest of scripture where Jesus isn't being quoted directly is somehow insufficient or lacks any power or isn't useful. All of scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for training, correcting, teaching, rebuking. Um, All those scriptures are helpful, uh, but going directly to Jesus has some kind of poignancy to it. And uh, so we wanna learn from him. So John chapter 11 is where we are this morning. And uh, it's a familiar passage, uh, maybe for you, if you've uh, been in church for some time, if you've studied the Bible, Uh, then John chapter 11 may be kind of a famous passage for you. I hope that by the Spirit's power and and the power of God's word, it will be fresh for you this morning and and have power to bring change, bring transformation and greater joy in Christ. So just as we normally do, I'll read this passage out loud if you wanna follow along. It is the entire chapter, uh, chapter 11. Uh, You can follow along, and then once we have read this chapter, uh, we'll pray together and ask for the Lord's help before we move any further. So John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this, uh, sorry, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Jesus has, uh, sorry, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been on the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, for the miracle that your word is written on pages and sitting in our laps. Thank you that we can learn from you, put our eyes on something and learn from you, hear with our ears what you actually say, the truth about who you are. Lord, help us please this morning to have open eyes and open ears. Holy Spirit, will you please come and move with your power and speak to us, teach us please. Don't let this be some time where uh, a mere person gives opinions about your word, but Spirit, would you yourself teach us your word? Please drive truth about Jesus deeply into our hearts. Overcome our misunderstandings, our limitations, our sinfulness. Help us to want what you want. Please transform us so that we would be more like Jesus and believe in him more wholeheartedly this morning. And would you please, as always, accomplish these things with your power, by your spirit, through the ministry of your word, for your own glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... uh, Maybe when I said John chapter 11, famous passage, you didn't remember which passage it was. Uh, Maybe even when I mentioned Lazarus and him being raised from the dead, you remembered some of those pieces of the story. Uh, But maybe it's a good refresher to go back and read the whole chapter and see the context around what Jesus was doing about Lazarus's death. Um, By the way, I know that there's gonna be at least a few times I'm gonna have to say Lazarus's during this sermon, and I'm just gonna ask for grace, uh, mainly because of my insecurity that you would just help me to say it without fear. So I I hope that it's refreshing for you to remember this. Uh, There's even some, a, a couple of key phrases that Jesus makes during this passage. For instance, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he dies, Uh, will uh, always live, then you've got uh, every preteen kid in a Bible drill's favorite verse, Jesus wept. (laughs) I memorized lots of scripture. Uh, But the context is greater than some isolated statements. Those things are powerful, and we'll talk about those things this morning because surely they're, they're greatly important to us and to understand Jesus and to understand what happened here with uh, Jesus and Lazarus, this family, these disciples, this community. 
But we want to understand uh, maybe in a, in a greater context, in a deeper way, not just some phrases, some kind of uh, truthful statements, but understand what it is they say about Jesus, how it is those things affect our lives, our belief, uh, the, the way we arrange our lives, the way we can uh, live out our faith in him. Uh, so that's the purpose this morning. So Jesus makes three statements here about the purpose of this event and how it unfolded. He makes three particular statements, and I want to point those out to you, okay? Now, this is not everything we're going to do this morning, but if Jesus said, look, here's why this happened, then that's what we want to know about it, right? So three particular statements Jesus makes in this chapter about why this event happened and about why it unfolded in the particular way that it did. So I want you to notice in verse four, first of all, he says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'll say it again. This is a quote from Jesus, not my first sermon point, my opinion about it. Jesus is saying, it, that is this illness, the context of it is this illness, is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you've always been taught that illness is an intolerable situation to God and that it is never his will that someone should be sick, I want to invite you to consider what Jesus just plainly said. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, another curious statement that he makes here, if you didn't already know the whole passage and you're being told this for the first time, he says, this illness does not result in death. Okay, well, I guess he's gonna get there in time, right? But he doesn't go and prevent Lazarus from dying. What Jesus is saying is in the ultimate sense, this will not end with Lazarus' death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There are so many things in life that seek to threaten our security, seek to inflict doubt, but biblically speaking, that's why we're here, right? Biblically speaking, there are a lot of things that you can absolutely count on in life as well with all the things that may threaten security and inspire doubt in this life, there are some things, a lot of things really, that the Bible says you can absolutely count on. And one of those things that you can be confident of in every situation is this. God is working for his glory and for our good. We've been singing about it. We're here in a passage that clearly illustrates it. Jesus is saying it out loud. He's always working for his glory and for our good. The our good part comes in the next two clear statements that he makes about the purpose of all this. In verse 15, he was glad for his disciples' sake that he was not with Lazarus at his death so that they may believe. He was glad he didn't get there before Lazarus died. Was anyone else in this situation glad that Jesus didn't make it before Lazarus died? 
Everybody else was trying to urge him to get there in time, and he's saying, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, in our own human limitation, we may think, well, you getting there on time and you healing him before he dies would be the thing that would cause them to believe in you. But Jesus had healed sick people and there was still a struggle with belief. Jesus here is wanting to really take things to another level. I want you to believe when everything is unraveling, when you think the story's over, that you would still in that time believe. Notice that Jesus was glad in this situation to disappoint them. He was glad to disappoint them because he had a higher way, a higher purpose that they didn't yet understand. So first statement that he makes, verse four, this illness is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. The second statement he makes about the purpose of all of this is verse 15, telling his disciples, I'm glad for your sake uh, that I was not there so that you may believe. And then the third statement is this in verse 42. He's praying here and he tells the father that they may believe that you, the father, sent me. It was important to Jesus that his disciples be confident that he was sent by the father. Why? Well, because if anyone else sent him, he's just a person. But if the father sent him, then he is the savior that they can rest all their hopes in. It was very important to him, so important that he, he enunciated this loud prayer to the father, thank you, father, that you have heard me. I know that you heard me, but I said this so that they may know that you sent me. Very important to Jesus that they and that we understand that God the Father sent him. Because if that is true, we can count on him as a savior we can hope in. Also notice in Jesus' prayer here that he had already spoken to the Father about this dead Lazarus situation. (laughs) Thank you, Father, that you heard me. He didn't say right there, Father, will you please Raise Lazarus from the dead. It's my will. Is it your? Yes, okay, we're in accordance here. This is our will. Thank you, Father, that you heard me. He just starts right out with, thank you, Father, that you heard me. He had already been praying about this to the Father. He already understood the Father's approval of all of this. They were working in unity to accomplish this work for their shared glory. Now remember that our purpose this morning, as it always is, is to grow in our understanding of the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he teaches, what he's done, so that we can walk closely with him. Because the more you genuinely understand who Jesus is, the more you understand his power, his authority, his compassion, and you're drawn into this deeper fellowship with him. So that's our purpose, as it always is, to understand Jesus, to understand who he is and what this is all about. 
The more we understand the truth about Jesus, the more confident we become in our faith in him. Because the truth about him is just mind-bogglingly wonderful. It is security-inducing to understand Jesus. You may not understand that yet this morning. The idea of Jesus may be a nice religious notion. Uh, You may even expect it as, uh, as more than religious and that it is actually something spiritual. But if you don't understand that the more you know Jesus, the more secure you become in your faith in him, then I would say you have not yet grown in much understanding of Jesus. Because clearly, if you understood more about him, you would be yearning, aching, thirsting to know even more of him. Because you understand that the more you understand him, the more secure you become in your faith in him. So before we move on from some particular things to notice about Jesus here, please take note of one last thing, his state of heart. We've pointed out some statements that he's made. Now look at his state of heart. Surrounded by brokenhearted friends, Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, the scripture says. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You can see this in verse 33. I'm just quoting it. Then again in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. Now, why does this matter? Why would it matter to us that Jesus, surrounded by all these people who are suffering, who are hurting, who are in this state of grief and feel that the story's over now, the outcome that we had hoped for is past, it's lost, and now we just have to try to digest and live with the aching that we're feeling that Lazarus is dead. Why is it important to know that Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled? Well, here's why. You may not know this yet this morning. Maybe you've never heard it before. Or maybe you've heard some things about this. Maybe you've heard some statements, but nobody's ever shown you from the scriptures how clear it is that Jesus cares Your suffering, your troubles, your pain, your anxieties, your fears, your trauma, move Jesus deeply and trouble him greatly. Move Jesus deeply and trouble him greatly. Now, how often when you just have a thought about Jesus, do you imagine him in a state of heart in which he is moved deeply and troubled greatly? Do you imagine Jesus ever in in your imagination? Do you ever picture him as being greatly troubled? Don't we always imagine him as being just this kind of invincible force? And in a sense, he is. But he can simultaneously be an invincible force 
and greatly troubled. He is the God-man, Jesus, our Savior. Isaiah 53, 4 prophesies about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See the imagery about Jesus there? He's born like a weight on his shoulders, our griefs. And he's carried our sorrows, held them, labored under them, kept them close. They matter to him. He's deeply moved and greatly troubled at those things that move us, that trouble us. Again, Isaiah, just a chapter later, again, speaking about the Lord, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. Great tragedy here. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now that is a comforting truth. To know that Jesus is not just in some very cold, calculated way working for his glory. That illness, that sickness, that suffering, that pain, grief, sorrow, trouble, weightiness, trauma, that these things are not just factors in an equation, but they're things that deeply move and greatly trouble his heart. He's compassionate, he's devoted, he's dedicated, he's with us, with us. Not just over us, but with us. To know that the Lord has compassion on us and will be faithful to us always, such a comforting truth. And yet, every one of us has had or is having, maybe even now, maybe even as you sit in this room and you, you see the Bible talking about the compassion of Jesus, about the big soft-heartedness of Jesus, about how he aches with those who are aching, he hurts with those who are hurting, maybe even now, you're having a battle in your soul to believe that Jesus loves you and cares about you in this way because your circumstances are accusing him of abandonment, accusing him, indicting him. How could it be possible that my life could be what it is, that I'm going through what I'm going through and that Jesus is deeply moved, greatly troubled? He seems so far away. Seems so distant. From my perspectives, it seems that Jesus is just busy with other things. How could it be true that simultaneously my life is what it is and Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled by it? Maybe you feel a bit like Mary or a bit like her sister Martha coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, if you had planned this out better, if you hadn't delayed, 
If you'd have been more thoughtful, more careful, more attentive, I mean, what were you doing for two days? Well, here's what he was doing. Look at verse five. There's some really rich theology and some phrases of the Bible that we just tend to pass over. Look at verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, because of his love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Doesn't that feel so contradictory? Because he loved them, he delayed. Because he loved this family, Mary, Martha, their brother, Lazarus, who was ill to the point of death, because he loved them so greatly, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, how can that be? How can that work out? Well, to bring us back to our place, our kind of soul conversation, our grief, our misunderstanding, our yearning to connect some ideas about Jesus' compassion, about his love, about his attentiveness, his grace. How can we understand him as Emmanuel when he's still out there? Which him being gone for two days while Lazarus is dying is really just this picture from our perspective of calling on Jesus and asking him, please intervene, change my situation. And he doesn't come and do the thing we're asking him to do. He's gonna let this play out. He's going to be involved and he is involved, but not how we want him to be. Not how we want him to be. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because if he just did what we wanted, it may not be the greatest expression of love. It may feel like mercy to us. It may feel like grace. It may feel like power from God for me. But it really just may be pandering. It may be just putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Jesus has a higher purpose that they did not yet understand. In Mary's mind, in Martha's mind, it was all over. Jesus had dropped the ball. Too little, too late. Glad you're here to help us grieve well. You're a friend of the family, so you're obviously invited. We're glad you're here. But I can't help but think if you just would have been here sooner. From their perspective, too little, too late. The evidence, Lazarus is dead. But please recognize that it was in this moment that Jesus became so deeply moved and so greatly troubled in his spirit when they came to him with their trouble, with their grief, with their question, their doubts, their sense of loss because Jesus didn't come in time to keep their brother from dying. This didn't anger or offend Jesus, which we might assume. 
We might assume that for them to come like this and say, if you just would have gotten here sooner, we gave you plenty of notice. I mean, he was only two miles away and it took him two days to get there. It would have been easy for him to arrive much, much sooner. But this didn't offend him. This didn't put him off. In fact, it drew him in even more. It was at this time that his compassion just swelled within him. His love for his disciples, his friends, this caused him profound grief to see these sisters grieving so profoundly. Even though, listen, even though he knew this moment was coming, even though he knew what he was about to do, to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though he knew the outcome and that they would be relieved, that they would get their brother back, that they would have an answer to their yearning that was even greater than the one they were asking for. Still, in this moment, he is deeply moved and greatly troubled at the grief and the trouble of his friends. It pained him. Now, why do we dwell on this so much? Because the battle in our souls to believe that Jesus cares for us like this, that, that the scriptures if they were written about our lives, if, if the Bible was still being written, the Spirit was still inspiring men, carrying them along to write down the very words of God, the truth of God, to, to be able to look into the heart of God, to look into the heart of Christ and tell you how exactly he feels in any given moment, that in our grief, our pain, our sorrow, our trouble, would the Spirit have it written that Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled about us, about our pain, the things that we're going through that tear us apart? This is the battle of our soul, to believe that Jesus cares. It's possible to believe that Jesus is God and struggle to believe that Jesus cares about you. Or you could believe the inverse, that Jesus really cares about you, but that he's not God. So he can do all the caring he wants, but he can't really do anything about it. We need to have a full biblical understanding of who Jesus is. He is God. He does have all authority and all power. And he does deeply care about you. But that doesn't mean that he will always give you what you're asking for. It doesn't mean that he'll relieve the suffering in the exact way that you believe you need him to. Why? Because he loves you. Now, if you find that difficult to swallow, it's because you're not him. You're you. I'm me. This is our perspective. We see with our eyes, we think with our minds, 
We have the limitations of our current level of faith and understanding and maturity. Jesus has no limitation. He sees all, knows all. His perspective is so far beyond ours, so much greater, broader, spanning eternity. He sees every piece, yet that doesn't talk him out of being deeply moved and greatly troubled in your moment. He cares, cares for you. This matter of perspective, this is something that he's teaching Mary and Martha here uh, and, and everyone around, I'm sure, and particularly Lazarus, don't you imagine, had a much different perspective? What the heck is going on? <laughs> hey, like, I've woken up from some naps feeling groggy before, but this brother, can you imagine? <laughs> the perspective here for Mary and Martha is... I care about you in this moment. I see your grief. I love you. This is all on purpose. It's for the glory of God and that I might be glorified through it and so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus himself is resurrection. That Jesus himself is life. Not the correction of your circumstance. Not the relieving of your suffering. Not answering your prayers in just the way you made sure to ask him very carefully. Like he's some genie in a bottle and if you say it just the right way, you can get exactly what you wanted out of God. But if you phrase it wrong, he might trick you and give you something that he should, he would, be careful what you ask for. He's not some trite genie. He's an all-powerful, loving God. To know him, to walk with him, to follow him, to trust him is life. It is resurrection. It is a resurrecting power to trust in Christ. And then anything you face, any trauma, any pain, any sorrow, any sadness, any suffering at all is relieved by simply knowing him. By simply belonging to him. He is the resurrection and the life. Raising Lazarus from the dead was really just a picture of something much greater to come. This is, this is great. Can you imagine living in this village? And you're there just mourning and weeping and here comes Jesus and then he starts weeping. Look how much he loved him. But couldn't he have been here sooner? Couldn't he have stopped all this? You and your friends talking on the side. He's so great. I wish he would have made it. And then all of a sudden he just, with Mary at his feet. You remember when he heard that Lazarus was ill, it took him two days to get there. He wasn't in any big hurry. But when Mary's at his feet weeping, he says, where'd you lay him? Where'd you lay him? And he goes weeping to the tomb. And then he prays thanking the Father that he heard him. And he just says, Lazarus, come out. 
And Lazarus, in his grave clothes, still bound, his face wrapped, his arms tied up in linen, comes stumbling out, not stumbling because he's still sick, stumbling because he's literally wrapped in grave clothes. Can you imagine the experience? Now let me ask you this. Jesus, risen from the dead, himself, risen from the dead, not by the authority of some other teacher, some mysterious prophet, but by his own power and authority, raised from the dead, so that sin and death have no mastery, either over him or anyone who believes in him, but he is now vicariously risen on our behalf, and all who believe in him are risen, are alive, are walking out of their graves. That is a powerful moment. You're living as someone, if you trust in Christ, if you believe in him, you believe this gospel about him, you are living a life as someone who's been called out of a grave. Not just someone standing to the side looking at what amazing miracles Jesus can do. You are the evidence of a great miracle that Jesus has done. You have walked out of your grave. Now, if the scripture hadn't specifically mentioned the four-day-old odor of a dead body, then we may not make a big point of it. But can you imagine the moment of Lazarus walking out of his tomb with the stench of his death still in the air. And he just leaves it behind. Now Jesus has raised us and we've walked out of our tombs and there's still this stench in the air. We still feel it and smell it and it follows us a bit, but we are alive. We are alive in Christ. That stench, that odor of the old you who was laying there, that's not you anymore. Now your life is this fragrant offering to God. Jesus here is just so other than. Jesus here is just transcendent. His power in this passage, combined with his compassion, his love, his timely intervention to accomplish glory and to accomplish belief in the hearts of his followers is just impeccable, is just masterful. And I want to invite you here to engage in something by the Spirit's power, by the Spirit's help, that is just completely unnatural. I wanna invite you now to adopt Jesus' perspective. His perspective. There's, there's two competing perspectives in this passage. You see that, don't you? The perspective of all these human beings who aren't sure Jesus is really engaged enough, really powerful enough, really loving enough, compassionate enough, 
gracious enough. And then there's Jesus, who is with determination, with full knowledge, with absolute power, with overflowing compassion and love for them, accomplishing glory and inspiring belief for eternal purposes. Do you see how much higher his perspective is? He's not trapped in the moment. He's free. He sees all. It is the most unnatural thing for a human being to adopt Jesus' perspective, to live by it, to know that it's true. It's the reason why we struggle. It's the reason why when we suffer, we start to doubt because we are living by our perspective and not Jesus' perspective. Please don't just read the first half of this chapter and then live as if Jesus is still on his way but running behind in your life. Like he, he cares and he wants to glorify himself. He's trying, but it almost seems kind of haphazard. It almost seems like he doesn't really understand, like he's a bit aloof. Well, he's, I mean, I guess he's in the heavens and he's really busy. Just doesn't seem real connected, real in tune with your life and your suffering. Like he just doesn't understand. Please, read the whole chapter and understand that Jesus is all-powerful, all-loving, all-compassionate, and always on time. If you adopt that, you believe that, embrace it, love it, live by it, build your life upon it, then what is there in your life that could make you scared? This dude was dead. I mean, isn't that kind of the end of all of our imaginary hypothetical scenarios where we're gonna suffer? At the end of it, there's always a tragic death. It just feels like, oh, and then perish, you know, just fizzling into perish. That's all of our doomsday scenarios in that way. This dude was actually dead. But it wasn't too late for Jesus. Now, side note, which is really very central, this doesn't mean that everything you ask for Jesus is going to do it just in some surprising way. You know what I mean? Like it's just going to be this weird roundabout answer to giving you what you want. Jesus may absolutely never give you some things that you ask for. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And that love for you and that authority that he has over your life, his timing, his perspective, his grace to accomplish his purposes, to glorify himself, and to bring you into deepening belief, that will always be accomplished. That is always a secure goal. But if your end game in life, if your big goal, if the, the thing that you're asking for would be most ultimately accomplished by your suffering being relieved, then you may find yourself disappointed 
But if you share Jesus' goal of glorifying him and believing in him in ever-deepening ways, you will never be disappointed. Absolutely never. Never be disappointed. Romans chapter 5 says something about this. Paul, who knew what it was to suffer and persevere and see Jesus come through to accomplish his purposes, said, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will never put us to shame or disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through Jesus Christ who's loved us. Hoping in Christ, having his perspective, loving what he loves, embracing what he embraces, sharing his ultimate goals for our lives of his glory and our ever-deepening belief in him, to be satisfied in him, this will result in this hope that just never disappoints. Your, your prayers will never be disappointed because Jesus is all sufficient. He always says yes to these things. He's always working on these things when we fail to even ask him for these things. Now, I feel that it's important that before we wrap up our time in this passage and understanding Jesus in it, that we return to a particular point. The point of Mary and Martha struggling to see Jesus as he is, struggling to have his perspective, maybe even understanding some points of theology but not really knowing how to apply them, feeling that Jesus is a bit aloof, a bit distant, a bit disconnected from their suffering, from their lives. I wanna remind you that Jesus here is not bound to only operate at their level of faith. I hope that you take that to heart this morning. Jesus is not bound to operate at your current level of faith. There's a lot of um, really hurtful teaching out there about how Jesus intervenes in people's lives to bring healing, to bring relief from suffering. And it goes something like this. Ask the Lord to bring this healing. Lord, please bring this healing. The Lord didn't bring the healing. Well, that's your fault. You must not believe him. You must not have enough faith. You have a little bit of faith, but not enough faith to somehow kind of talk Jesus into doing this thing. You have a little bit of faith, but you don't have enough faith to, to activate the power of Christ as if Jesus needs to be activated by some human being's fledgling level of faith. No, Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, mountains can be moved. Why would he say that? Why is it that he's not dissuaded from raising Lazarus from the dead here when Mary and Martha don't believe him for it? Not even on their minds. Because Jesus is who Jesus is. Jesus' purposes 
are his purposes. His power is his power. His will is his will. His grace is his grace. His compassion is his compassion. And he's not looking to you to somehow free him up to be who he is. He just is who he is. He is savior. He is all-powerful, all-gracious, all-loving, always on time. And he will accomplish his glory and he will inspire belief in you and create ever-deepening belief in you. The call to us is to persevere with Christ's perspective. And in this, you will never be disappointed in your hope. Let's pray about it. Lord, here we are before you, your very limited disciples, filled with misunderstanding, misguided ideas about you, earthly perspective, some points of theology that we've gathered over the years but not even knowing always how to apply it or what its conclusions are. I feel so many times, Lord, like those disciples that you you said, Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm gonna go wake him up and, and here I am just, oh, well, just let him rest, Lord, just let him rest. And that you have to get you have to kind of stoop down to me and make it more clear because I'm just dull. I feel so many times just so dull before you, Lord. But I thank you that you do stoop down to us. In fact, even greater, even more comforting than you stooping down, you're just with us. You're just here with us. Always before us, always with us. Lord, thank you that we can believe in you as the resurrection and the life, that you have the power to heal, you have the power to raise from the dead. But more than anything, Lord, you are raised from the dead. And that resurrection power is you. Thank you, Lord, that this is not something that depends on us. That we're not raised from the dead when we believe you enough for it. I know Lazarus didn't believe anything about that. He was dead. And you just called him out and by your authority he walked out of his grave. Because he was told to because he was commanded by the voice of God, not because he agreed with your desire. Thank you for calling us out of our graves. And Lord, thank you that when we are Mary, when we're Martha, when we're doubting, when we have our earthly perspective and we forget yours or we don't trust yours, that you are deeply moved 
and greatly troubled, not offended by us, not pushing us away, but calling us in close, telling us to watch as you work, as you do what only you can do to accomplish the highest, most wonderful purposes in all of the universe, to glorify yourself, to bring us into ever-deepening belief that we would increase in joy, increase in peace, Thank you, Lord, for being a compassionate Savior. It comes to my mind right now, Lord, even as we're all gathered here together, thinking about these things, thinking about you, about our own lives, about what this says about us, about how we live, about how we should trust you. That because of your word, we can actually live with that 2020 hindsight. We can see you, how you work, what you teach, who you are, and live in light of it. What an advantage we have. Yet it comes to my mind right now that there may be some of us gathered here together this morning who are in such a state of grief, such a state of worry, of pain, of insecurity, that they have given up hope that you are involved. And I honestly, in this moment, I, I don't know, Lord, how to piece together a prayer I just want to ask you to move with your power. Lord Jesus, please persist in accomplishing your will in these people's lives. These people who are so broken, confused and doubtful. Spirit, will you move on them do what only you can do. Please help them as you define help. Lord for your work among us your grace to us we pray in Jesus name Amen